So I'm delighted to be joined on today's podcast by Claire Fuller. Hi, Claire. Hi, it's lovely to meet with you today. Absolutely. Great to have you on the podcast, a fellow podcaster as well. But do you want to introduce yourself to the Medics Money podcast listeners and tell us a bit about yourself? Because you've had a really varied and interesting career. And what you're going to talk about today is something that, unfortunately, everybody, even doctors, need to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, Tommy. I can't do this quickly, so apologies in advance. I'm still working on my elevator pitch. So name is Claire Fuller. And if you cut me through the centre, you'd see nurse written through and through and palliative care nurse. Worked in palliative care for 30 years, starting off as a really proud person working in a hospice. So a very proud specialist nurse, worked in the community and then worked in a hospital, Tommy. And at that point, I really developed an interest in what I would call generalist palliative care. So you know how few people get to die in the privileged white castle of a hospice. And I set out to make it better for the generalists because most people are going to die in a hospital environment. I went on to work in a community environment. I worked for the Gold Standards Framework, the GSF nationally as well. A stint as a CQC inspector, which I, I still do alongside the current job. And last year I took the plunge to become self-employed. So I set up my own business, which I think, and listening to your podcast, it's quite normal for doctors to have portfolio careers but less common for nurses, I think, I've come across. Sorry, I forgot to add that I did a simple CCG as well, so delivering the workforce plan. So quite a varied career. I set up my own consultancy to help teams improve end-of-life care, to provide education, and also to write lasting powers of attorney for people. I think the themes running through all of my passions and my work is proactive advanced care planning. So all of those sort of co-leads with proactive advanced care planning. Amazing. And I love projects like this because it's basically born out of something that you noticed that could be done better and you've taken action and started your own thing to do it better. A bit like Medics Money. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. What was it specifically that motivated you? What did you want to do better? So from an advanced care planning point of view, it's very much to raise public awareness and improve professional understanding. So I would love to get to the point where this is a national conversation and this is a normal thing that we all do, Tommy. So it's not something you do as a doctor or your patients will do as patients. It's something that we all do together. I would like to work towards making these conversations normal. They're not a scary part of life. I'd like to make these conversations better and a part of something that we all do. We all plan for our schools, we plan for our jobs, but we don't plan for our health necessarily, the most important part of our life. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I see every day. And also, you know, just being honest, something that I'm guilty of, you know, even after 15 years as a doctor, I still find it difficult when somebody comes to see me and then they're having a chat about their heart failure and everything. And then it's hard to sort of change tack and say, you know, I think we need to talk about, you know, DNA CPRs and advanced care planning. I don't know, like, why do we find it so hard to talk about this? Because as I'm sure you've noticed, if you've got a plan, it's much better than no plan. But I still find it awkward, just being honest. Yeah, no, I think that's a really honest thing to say. I think we find it awkward because we separate it into a binary process. 
So either we need to start advanced care planning or we don't. Now you've touched on, did you say heart failure or COPD? I think we're not in the culture of thinking of long-term conditions as being a palliative care diagnosis. So having long-term condition, frailty, dementia, COPD, by definition is a palliative care diagnosis. And it's about starting those conversations early. I think we often leave them too late and then they become quite scary, quite difficult to initiate. You'll be very familiar with what matters most to you or what matters movement as well. And I think understanding what matters to people is the basis for advanced care planning and engaging people in what matters most. If you know your patients, if you know they want to stay out of hospital, rather than saying, let's start a DNA CPR conversation by approaching what matters most to you, what are your goals in life? Not a back door to advanced care planning, but it's an easier route in perhaps. Yeah, definitely. It's like an icebreaker. And I did use the example of heart failure because you're right. If somebody's got a palliative diagnosis of cancer or something, then of course, it's relatively easy. But a yeah. lot of my patients are really old and lots of them have heart failure and COPD. And I guess they're kind of not expecting to pass away. And, you know, their legs are swollen and they're a bit short of breath, but they don't think that their life expectancy is under one year. But of course, you've got end stage heart failure. Yeah. That is the case. And I think that's a bit why I struggle in that scenario. Definitely, as you said, like those chronic diseases also need some palliative care input and also shout out to our local hospice, which is St. Wilfred's. The palliative care team there are amazing. I know that it's not universal, the provision, but locally, we're really lucky. And it still blows me away that it's a charity funded thing, not a sort of state funded thing. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see with the new health and social care bill. So we are going to have a mandate to provide palliative care and specialist palliative care for all. So I'm watching that with absolute interest. How are we going to implement that will be so interesting. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about pushing this into the hands of generalists. This isn't something that we can hand over to specialist teams. Generalists are going to have to be confident and happy about delivering palliative care, good, basic, end-of-life care. Yeah, definitely. I say we're really lucky locally to have the support of the hospice and that team. So, you know, that's a bit about what we can do for our patients. But you mentioned a bit about what we can do for ourselves at the start. And you mentioned something which hopefully our listeners will be familiar with, but maybe not the details, but lasting power of, us, of attorney. Easy for me to say. LPA, can I call it? Oh, please do. <laughs> so what are the different types of LPA and the differences between them? Okay. So lasting power of attorney, two different types of LPAs. You've got one for your health and welfare and one for property and finance. So a health and welfare one only kicks in when you lose capacity. And coming back to our earlier conversation, I think a lot of people associate a lasting power of attorney with a chronic illness, something like dementia, and forget about it. It's for those sudden accidents as well, isn't it? I always say, if I drove over the Dartford Bridge, my lasting power of attorney, just in case. You've also got a property and finance lasting power of attorney to manage your property and financial affairs. A couple of differences between them. You can choose the lasting power of attorney, property and finance to kick in when you have capacity. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so that's the two main types. Let's say an unfortunately all too common situation is what happens if you don't have a LPA in place? What's the default position? Oh, that's a juicy question there. If you don't have a lasting power of attorney in place, you do need to apply to the Court of Protection to become a court-appointed deputy. Quite a long and complex process. It means you don't have a say in who would speak for you. 
process, Tommy, is really complex. I don't know if you've had to go through it for yourself or for any of your patients, but quite a complex process. Two different forms to apply, the COP1, the COP3. There's also an ongoing annual report to do if you're going through the quarter protection as well. Going through the quarter protection takes a huge amount of time compared to around about 20 weeks at the moment to make a lasting power of attorney. It takes considerably longer to go through the quarter protection. And lastly, really importantly, it costs an awful lot more to go to the quarter protection, around for about 400 to 500 pounds. So longer costs more and you don't get a say in who's appointed to speak for you. Get it done early, proactively is the message I'm getting loud and clear there. So I guess that leads on to my next question, which is how can you or me make an LPA? Okay, you've got three routes to make a lasting power of attorney. And really important for listeners to know, you can do it yourself. So you don't need a solicitor, you don't need an independent person. You can, at the end of this podcast, click on the government website and we can give the links and just crack on and do it yourself. Any way you do it, you have to pay an office of the public guardian fee, which, believe it or not, is the only thing that's come down in cost. It used to be, I think, 120. It's come down to 82 pounds now. So you can do it for yourself. Fill in the forms, get them signed, pay and send to the office of the public guardian for registration. A lot of people will be familiar with solicitors doing lasting power of attorney. And by all means, you can have a solicitor to do a lasting power of attorney. And lastly, you can use somebody like myself, which is a lasting power of attorney consultant. I'd also like to throw in that you could do a hybrid between these options. I apologise, I didn't mention when you asked about the different lasting powers of attorney at the beginning, I should have said we've also got a business lasting power of attorney. Now, some people, and I've looked on a lot of websites, and that's promoted as something grand and glorious and completely different. But in essence, a business lasting power of attorney is simply a financial lasting power of attorney. For a lot of your listeners, it's highly relevant because a business lasting power of attorney, a lot of your listeners will have their own practices or their own businesses. So throw that in there as well. So I've mentioned you could do it yourself. You could use a solicitor or you could use a lasting power of attorney consultant. You may want to use a hybrid of all of those versions as well. So, for example, your health and welfare lasting power of attorney could be relatively simple, but your business lasting power of attorney, you might want to engage a potential solicitor for that if it's more complex. And I would argue that a business lasting power of attorney as a business owner is part of your business continuity and worth thinking about. So three different ways or a hybrid between them all. Obviously, if you use a professional, they're going to guide you through this next question. But just for those that are interested, everybody should be interested in this. Like, what are the key things that you need to consider when making an LPA? Okay, so the key things that you need to consider, and I'll treat the Health and Welfare and Property and Finance Society differently in a second. But for both of them, they involve a choice about how your attorneys will act. Will they act jointly? If Obviously, if you have more than one attorney, will they act jointly? With that jointly and severally, with that jointly for some decisions and severally for others. And that's an important thing to tease through with your LPA consultant or solicitor. In reality, most people go for the jointly and severally option because it's the most practical option. That means if you've got a brother and a sister, say, working as an attorney, if the sister is out of the country, the brother can make decisions and vice versa. You don't need two around the table. And that can be quite, I don't know if you've worked with patients like that and having to wait for two attorneys to make decisions, but that can be quite limiting. So firstly, consider how your attorneys will act. You may have the same attorneys for both health and welfare and property and finance. You may choose different and that's absolutely fine. 
Another key consideration is, and I'm smiling as I'm saying this, but actually talk to your attorneys, have the conversation. Because unless your attorneys know what matters to you, the forms are just forms. It's important to realize that your attorneys are speaking for you. They're not speaking for themselves. So if you have two or three attorneys, it's each one needs to know what you would wish they're representing you. For the health and welfare one, and I said I'd explain those nuances a little, but you have the option to decide whether you want option A or option B, and that relates to life-sustaining treatment decisions. And I think as healthcare professionals, we don't often check that out when we check a form. So people wave a lasting power of attorney form at us. How many people check through and see the validity of that form and whether option A or option B has been ticked? In reality, Tommy, most people have option A because... Why would you have a lasting power of attorney and not tick that? It doesn't often make sense. When you're making a property in finance, the decision that you have to make is when that would kick in. So does it kick in when you have capacity with your consent or simply when you lose capacity? Another consideration to bear in mind that people may not think of is if you've got an ADRT or an advanced decision to refuse treatment. So if you make an LPA after your ADRT, the LPA will take effect. I often work with clients who want to do both an ADRT and a lasting power of attorney. I'd often recommend that we do the ADRT after the lasting power of attorney. So there are key things that I would be bearing in mind. Okay, so that sounds really useful and hopefully that's helping people. But, you know, you do this all the time. What are the common mm. triggers that lead people to make an LPA? I'm a prolific tweeter, and I sent out a tweet on this just to find out from the Twitter community what a trigger would be. Now, we're not talking about validated research here, and of course, the people that responded, I think, had vested interest. I asked if it was a change in health, routine life planning, or other, and I'd love you to guess which one out of those do you think was most common? I'd say a change in health, maybe? Sadly not. So a change in health came in second. Firstly, people said routine life planning. I think that was the Twitter community that responded to me and the people that were interested. And in reality, what I find is it is indeed, as you say, the change in health that happens. So it's not embedded in our consciousness about, oh, this should be something that I do. It tends to be, well, this happened to my brother-in-law. They had a complete disaster. I'd better sort it out for me. And divorce came up quite a lot as well. So divorce seemed to be a trigger. And having a family seemed to be a trigger. We do know that I was really stunned to find out only about 1% of the population do have a lasting power of attorney in place compared to about 40% for wills. And those that do tend to have one for property and finance, not health and welfare. So triggers are often, sadly, when it's far too late. Yeah. And that's the purpose of today's podcast. And yeah, my trigger was when I made my will. They were like, do you want to do a lasting power of attorney? And I was like, no offense, but that's for like old people. Yeah. And like, oh, no, it's not. And then gave me a long list of reasons why I need to do it. So yeah, it's all good. Which kind of brings me on to another question, which is like myths and, you know, inaccurate assumptions about LPAs. You must see this a lot, but give us your wisdom. Yep. So some really common myths that I'd like to pick up on here. So Big shout out for me. You can tell I always come back to the health, health and welfare. So the big shout out is around about 72% of people think that your next of kin get the final say in treatment decisions for you if you're in hospital. I hear people say, well, I don't need a lasting power of attorney. My husband knows what I want. Well, that's completely untrue. As you know, you need the explicit agreed consent ahead to be able to have those sort of decisions. So the first myth is that 
you don't need a nasty pair of attorney because you've not got an ex of kin. I would say the second biggest myth is I don't need a lasting power of attorney because I've got a joint bank account. Again, we can blow that one out of the water. A joint bank account, again, if one person loses capacity, the other person doesn't have an automatic right to continue that joint bank account. There are limitations on that. Kate Garraway spoke very publicly when her husband Derek had COVID about the challenges she experienced because they didn't have a lasting power of attorney in place. I think she mentioned it was things like paying for the car insurance that was a particular challenge in a really difficult situation. The third thing is that people think that you can just make a lasting power of attorney when you need it. So I'm going to shock you now by saying it's taking around about 20 weeks to make a lasting power of attorney. That's if there are no problems. So you can imagine if you had a health crisis, you certainly don't have 20 weeks to make an elasting power of attorney. So thinking that your next of kin can make decisions for you, thinking that you've got a joint bank account or thinking that you can set one up when you need it are, I would say, the common myths that I hear. I want to pick your brains about something else in a minute using the benefit of your years of experience of palliative care. But anything else around LPAs and that kind of thing, apart from, you know, just be proactive, get it done, it's not difficult to do. You know, there's not really any excuse to do. I remember when I did mine and so some close friends of ours are, you know, trusted guardians of our will or whatever you say. And they were like, why are you doing it now? Like you're only 40, <laughs> which is very young. And then three weeks later, they were like, mate, can you be trusted guardian of my will as well? So it's like, yeah. we just got to talk about it early doors and get it done. But like, give us your wisdom or what should people do right now to sort this out? My wisdom, my first of all, would be talk to the people that you know and love. Talk to the people that you love about what matters most. Secondly, just to remind everybody that we are all mortal. None of us are going to get out of here alive. And we need to recognize that and face that. Let's start breaking down the barriers and stop seeing it as a professional job for somebody else to do the advanced care planning. If you're watching television, if you're watching a film, talk to your family and tell them what you would want to do. And finally, I'd like to say that thinking ahead, advanced care planning, doing a lasting power of attorney, all of these things are very much a gift to the people that we love. Don't leave them in confusion. Leave them with plans and knowledge that they're doing what you wish. Some amazing tips in there for everyone. I really hope that was useful. And yeah, we do need to be more proactive about discussing advanced care planning. Oh, thanks so much for your wisdom and coming on today, Claire. We rely on experts like you coming on and educating us all on the Medics Money podcast. You mentioned that you were a keen tweeter, a Twitterer, tweeter, what we say. Where's the best way to contact you? The best way to contact me is through Claire Fuller 17 via Twitter. And also I blog every couple of weeks and I host a podcast and you can access that at www.speakformeopa.co.uk and I'm pumping out loads of info through the website. Awesome. And that hopefully will be useful for patients as well, right? Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. And what's your podcast called? Just so that we can search for it on our favorite podcast player of choice. Well, with hindsight, it would have been called a lot shorter, like your one, but it is called Conversations About Advanced Care Planning with Claire Fuller which was foolhardy when you're trying to fit it into your Twitter feed. <laughs> well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, which is why we're here, to help people get hindsight from your wisdom. So thanks so much, Claire. Check out those links. And it was a pleasure to have you on the Medics Money podcast today. Thank you. Great meeting with you. Mm -hmm.